to have a word for me in here and a um, kind of a statement. And then we have a, a history and the statement and purpose of goal. And the purpose, I'll read one paragraph. The purpose of the Brian Bible Institute is to glorify God by training faithful Christian workmen to become approved unto God and not ashamed of the distinctive message of God's matchless grace revealed to and through the Apostle Paul. BBI will promote and understand the entire Bible in the light of the Pauline revelation and encourage the universal proclamation of God's present administration of grace both to the world and to the church. And so that, that makes us distinct. As far as I know, we're the only school of our kind. We're not the only Grace Bible Institute. There's other, other schools, there's other colleges. Um, then there's uh, several men that have programs in their churches, several pastors that have programs in their churches across the country. But this is a big country. They tell me, I don't know who counted them. I'm not sure that uh, how accurate the census is, but they come up with numbers and they say there's 280, 70 or 80 million people in the United States now, close to, getting close to 300 million. And there's a lot of room for the gospel to go out. And we're not in competition with anyone. We believe that we're, we're unique and we feel a need for, for those that the Lord sends to us. And uh, my prayer is that there would be Bible institutes all over the country and that we'd have great churches all over the country. I'd like to see great church in every city in every town. That's what we would like to see. And that's why what we're doing is we're training pastors. That's primarily what we do is train pastors. Um, others come. Others are missionaries. Those that will be missionaries. Those that will be uh, Bible teachers, evangelists, uh, pastors' wives. That's a good place for uh, young men and young women to get together. And uh, we're already starting to see that. This is our seventh year of operation now. And so we're in our seventh year of classes. We started in 1996. We've had six years. And uh, so we're starting out, and we're small. But by God's grace, we're going to go on, and we're going to grow, and we're going to be graduating men, especially pastors, that are going to go out and start churches or, or become pastors of churches that are there to make known the wonderful gospel of the grace of God. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about our purpose because I believe it's the purpose of the, of the, of the church. And I, I think the church is made up of all those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. But the purpose of the church is to allow God to work through them to be a testimony and a witness to the world of the saving grace of God. Uh, also, we have some brand searchlights. I have two copies, uh, a few copies of two different editions. Let's put it that way. The June. Um, edition of the Brian Searchlight, and I think probably some of you uh, get the Searchlight, and we have a um, section in it on the Brian Bible Institute. We have a, they give us a page every every month, we call the BBI Byline, those that are familiar with the Searchlight. In the June, though, we have uh, one and a half, two and a half pages, what is the Brian Bible Institute, and we just answered a lot of questions there is what we've done, the com a lot of the common questions we get. So you can pick that up and you can read that. We also have a copy of the September. Probably haven't got your September edition yet. How many have got the September one? Okay. Not everyone. They mail out bulk. Some people get them sooner than others. Sometimes we live right there in uh, close to Germantown and sometimes we don't get ours for till the end of the month. I don't know where they go. I think they probably ship them to Chicago before they... <laughs> I don't know. But that's the way bulk mail does. It lays there until they get time for it. 
We also have a, um, the byline in this one is by Pastor James Penny. He's the new pastor of the Falls Bible Church in um, Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. He came to know the grace message. He pastored Ricky Kirk in Chicago. And he started uh, coming, he came last semester. He, well, he's, he's got a degree in theology. He was a Seventh-day Adventist at one time, but he left that uh, several years ago. But then when he came to understand the grace message, a lot of things started making sense to him. I invite you to pick that, pick that up. We don't have enough for everybody, and maybe you can share it. But pick that up and read that article that he put in there, that he wrote in there. It's kind of a testimony. And um, I didn't ask him to write it. I didn't tell him what to say. So I want to say that. And that's all I'll say about that right now. If you have any questions about Brian Bible Institute, let me know. Uh, we do ask, ask something. We um, ask that you consider supporting Brian Bible Institute. We think it's an important ministry. We're a small, small ministry. We're starting out, and we are in growing pains. We're getting, we, the Lord has blessed us, where we, what we've been doing and where we've gone to, but we need to expand. Uh, we already know we're going to have new students next semester, and uh, what's going to come the next year, we don't know. But we're going to have to have our own facility. So we're going to have to step out on faith, and uh, that can only be provided by God's people, as God provides through them because we could never charge enough tuition to pay to keep a school going. It's just impossible. No, no school does. There's not a school in the country that does that. It has to be supported. You know, colleges and universities usually have grants and uh, uh, foundations backing them and, they, and that kind of thing. And the public schools, they just uh, siphon money off of everything. That comes, you know, all your property taxes mostly and things. And, <laughs> and uh, they... Uh, uh, they have to have that money to operate. Well, so do we. And um, well, we don't we don't beg, but we do ask that you consider what the Lord would have you do if you have some of His money that uh, that you don't know what to do with. You could send it our way. We don't want you taking away from your local ministry and your local church. We think that's very important. Also, we ask that you pray for us. Uh, pray for the ministry of the Brand Bible Institute. Pray for the the faculty there. Pray for the students. And um, and we want to pray for you, too. And I, I ask that. It's not because I believe in prayer, but I believe in a God who hears and answers prayer. The prayer itself has no, no power. But our God does. He's the living God. He's the creator God. He is the God who reigns in heaven. And he reigns over all things. And we can trust him. And I guess that brings us time to get into my message. Um, how long do we go to here? I shouldn't ask that question. Preachers really don't want to know when they ask that. Anyway, um, I know I was at one church, and I got up to introduce me to preach, and it was about a quarter after 11, and I asked the, the, the uh, elder there that was a guest speaker, and I asked him, well, what time do we usually close? He said, well, he said, you can preach as long as you want, but we leave at 12. So, <laughs> so I don't know if that's going to be here. And, uh, you know, here, it's been interesting being here. I see we have a lot of rocking chairs. There's an old saying, at least in my part of the country. I'm from North Missouri, and uh, that's where I was raised. And they'll say, well, he's as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> have you ever heard that saying? Well, you stop and think about it a while. You know, a cat was laying there in all these rocking chairs. Have you ever seen a cat get his tail caught under the rocking chair? Well, this, you know, I, I always thought about that when I hear that. 
a room full of rocking chairs. Well, that just sounds something, you know, who had ever seen anything like that? Well, here we have it, don't we? And uh, they got enough outside, we need more, you can bring them in. You know, they got a lot of rocking chairs around here. And um, I hope that's not so you can go to sleep easier while the preacher's preaching. You know, they get you pretty comfortable in those. Um, so what am I going to talk about tonight? I'm going to talk about the promises of covenant. And let's, God's promises to Israel, the nation of Israel. I, um, there's so many different ways you can approach this and look at it. Um, and what are those promises to Israel? We have spiritual blessings and heavenly places promised to us as members of the body of Christ, don't we? But God has the promises to Israel also. On the way here, uh, yesterday as we were driving, I was turning on the radio and trying to find a station to listen to, and we heard a program called The Voice of Prophecy. And I think it's Seventh-day Adventist, uh, their long-standing program, and he was talking about heaven and what it was going to be like. And you know, as I listened to him, I realized he's got something mixed up. He wasn't talking about heaven. He was talking about earth. And he was actually talking about uh, what we were going to do. And he had some kind of idea of people, uh, I don't know, playing tennis and things like that. And it's going to be here on the new earth. And he's got something mixed up because there is a new heavens and a new earth coming, isn't there? And I think it's important to make a distinction between those. There is going to be a new heaven and there is going to be a new earth. And God has a people for heaven and a people for earth. But we're going to talk about some of the things that are promised to Israel and specific to Israel and how important they are to understanding the dispensation that we're in. I believe that the better we understand the Old Testament and the message that God had for Israel and what Israel's hope was, what the promises to Israel were, the, the more astounding the dispensation of grace is when you back up and look at it and say, wow, what God is doing today. It's not that they'll be any less saved, those believers that come through come to, to God through the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. There's only one Redeemer. There'll only be, ever be one Redeemer. It's the same Lord Jesus Christ that's Israel's Messiah that is our Savior. And He's the only Savior. And I, it's very, very important to understand that. And let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read... The first three verses, and they're very important verses in understanding what's going on. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into the land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace and for your love, your mercy and goodness. We thank you for the salvation that is so freely given in Jesus Christ, our Lord. For all that we have in him, and we just ask now, Lord, that you guide and direct us in our thinking. Give us the understanding, Lord, of your word and the, uh, the grasp of it, that we might know you better that we might serve you more effectively and that we might be a blessing to those we come in contact with. In the wonderful name, the thrilling name of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Here we have some promises. Before we look at what he said to, uh, we're getting a pop sometime. Is that this thing or is that me or what? 
No, I didn't do it. I don't know. I, I keep hearing a pop. I don't know if that's something I'm doing or what. Um, Jesus Christ, his relationship to Israel and his relationship to the body of Christ. And there's something... Let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, before we look at these promises given to uh, Abraham and through Abraham to his son Isaac to his grandson Jacob to the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. That's how that pro those promises are carried down. Matthew, chapter 1. It's a very interesting and I'll just give you something to think about. Maybe you can do a study on your own. I wish somebody would because I haven't had time to do it. Um, have you ever studied through the book of, of the book of Generations? Which book is that? Pardon? I'm not here. Matthew. Oh, there's another book of Generations. Genesis, that's right. There's ten generations. Talks about the generations of heaven and earth. Talks about the generations of Adam, and actually goes down through Seth. It talks about the generations of uh, Noah, Noah's son, Terah, Abraham, uh, Esau, uh, Ishmael, Esau, J Jacob. It has all those generations in it. It says this is the generations of, this is the history of, and it gives a, a lineage there. And it comes to, you know, it, it really narrows down when it gets to Abraham. But there's another book, The Generations, here in Matthew, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What does that mean? Well, Jesus Christ did not get married and have children like Abraham and those people did. But there's still a generation. Jesus Christ was a new kind of humanity when he came to earth. And we're in on the blessing because we're the new man in Christ, aren't we? But there's something very important. I'd like somebody to do some studies on the generations there in, the, in, in, in uh, Genesis and, and looking at those things. Because when we get to Terah and it picks up Abraham, we don't find that. I don't think we find that term anymore, except in Chronicles where it goes over those things anymore until we get here. And that plays a very important part in prophecy, it plays an important part in Israel, plays an important part in who the Lord Jesus Christ is. But notice who he is identified as here. The son of David, the son of Abraham. There is only one Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to uh, stress that, because I've heard some strange things about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the uh, body of Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of Israel. It's the same one. There is no difference except his ministry that he's carrying out and when he decides to do it. We're in the dispensation of grace today, but it's the same Lord Jesus Christ. You know he's seated in the heavens today? You know that's part of prophecy for him to be seated in the heavens? It is. He's going to seated at the right hand of the Father until he comes back and conquers this earth. But that's getting ahead of myself. I wanted to see this. Let's go to the book of Romans. Now why is it the son of David, the son of Abraham? He identifies... The Lord Jesus Christ is the heir of the promises made to David and the heir of the promises made to Abraham. Now David was the heir of the promises made to Abraham. But there was something in 2 Samuel, there's an amplification there 
of the kingdom message was a promise made to David that he would always have a son to sit on the throne. That's in 2 Samuel chapter six, or 7. And I'm not going to take the time to look at that right now, but we want to think that. Put that in your mind and think about it. And then he goes down through Isaac and, and Jacob and, and uh, his brethren, Judas and his brethren. Of course, Judas or Judah is who it was here. And he goes down, the Lord Jesus Christ came to the tribe of Judah. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. See how the Apostle Paul introduces the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting. Some things that I thought about recently, um, exactly when different portions of Scripture were written, some of the traditional things we'll find in our Bibles and the, and the introductions and things, sometimes I wonder how accurate they are. I find that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the churches that he wrote to, he assumed they had a knowledge of the Gospels, of the Gospel record of Christ's earthly ministry. Think about it. Just think about it. He wrote, he didn't explain a lot of things to him about who is Jesus Christ. He assumed they knew who he was talking about and some of the pr prophetic things that go along with that. that that's, I find that interesting. I, I think they probably, I think most of the Bible books were written much earlier than tradition tells us. I really do. That's my opinion. You have a different opinion. That's fine. But I really do. I really think they were written earlier. I, I don't think that Schofield necessarily, because he said it, that was make, makes it accurate. I, I think the book of John and the, and the book of Revelation was written much earlier than uh, they, most of them say 90-some A.D. You know what? I don't think that book of prophecy was written during the dispensation of grace. I think it was written back when it was pertinent to those Jews that were there. Uh, maybe even before, you know, before Paul was converted. Very well could be, I don't know. But chapter 1 of Romans, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God, which he had promised before by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that's Jesus, Messiah, Hoshima HaMashiach, is what the Jews would say. He's Jesus Christ, Joshua the Messiah. The word Jesus, the name Jesus is the same as Joshua. He's just a... a the Greek term is Jesus, where Joshua, he was named after Joshua. Joshua means Jehovah's salvation. That's what it means. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And he acknowledges this in his letter several times. Jesus Christ was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. When he came, when he became man, now, Lord Jesus Christ didn't come into being when he became man. He's the eternal God the Son, second person of the Godhead. But he took upon flesh upon himself. Him who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Apostle Paul admonishes, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery equal with God, but humbled himself and became a servant by coming in the likeness of sinful men. But he says here, he came according to the flesh. He came from the line of David. That's what he's really saying. Now, he was virgin born, and we know that. And that's very important also. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this is also written to us, not just the saints at Rome. Those particular people are gone, but God preserved that for us, and we are all called to be saints in Jesus Christ. 
but declared to be the Son of God with power. Let's stop and think back at the ancient religions. Judaism, looking for a Messiah that would come from the line of David. And Paul wrote this letter. They were still looking for that. What did the Gentiles, what were the Gentiles? What was the, one of the common themes of the Gentiles' false religions? Who did the, a lot of their emperors, the Pharaoh of Egypt, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, some of the others, Alexander the Great claimed it to be the representation of God on earth. That's what they claimed. God's representative on earth. That's what they were looking for. You find that over and over in, the, in those, those pagan religions. Somehow these guys get to be king and pretty soon they say, I am the son of God. Paul's writing this to Jews and Gentiles. You know what? I, I can see Jews and Gentiles when they hear this. I can see the Jews. He said, the son of David. We know about him. And the son of God with power. The Gentiles didn't know about him. They, they taught what they called the son of God. But none of, their, none of their kings or pharaohs or any other rulers, they had the power. This man was resurrected from the dead. And as it proved him to be the Son of God. What a wonderful thing this is. You know, and it would get the, the Gentiles' I, uh, attention. What, what's he got to say about this? Uh, let's go back to Exodus, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 12. First, I want to give you a test. We usually have classes first, don't we? But uh, none of my, my students are here, so I can ask this question. Uh, how many wives did Abram have? Abraham. How many say two? How many think more? How many? Six. Somebody said three. Three, right. Yeah, in Genesis 25, it tells us that after Sarah died, now we know everybody knows about Ishmael and Hagar. Right. And she was taken as a concubine, where we consider that as a wife. She had a son called Ishmael. And so, how many sons did he have? Yeah, he had more than two. Chapter 25 of Genesis. If you got to understand what, what goes on even today, we need to know this. Then again, Abraham took a wife and her name was Keturah. This is after Sarah died. Sarah, excuse me. Ish, uh, Hagar had been sent away and Ishmael and remember in chapter 17 he promised that Ishmael would become a great nation too he'd be 17 tribes also or 12 tribes and she bare him Zimran Jokshan Medan Midian Ishbeth and Shua six more sons interesting I can't trace you can't trace them all but Midian we know who, where they went and Israel had a lot of trouble with them later matter of fact Jethro was a priest of Midian. The Midianite. That's right. Uh, Moses' wife was a Midianite. And later, Israel had a lot of trouble with the Midianites. And he named some of them. I'm not going to read those. But, well, we will read them. In verse 4, And the sons of Midian, Ephah, and Ephor, and Hanak, and Abadah, and Eldah, all these were the children of Keturah. 
And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But unto the sons of the concubines, that's Hagar and Keturah, plural, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac, his son, while he yet lived eastward into the east country. You know, we have a battle going on right now over there, and a, a big ado and a fuss has been going on since this time. <laughs> and they haven't gotten over it yet. These other countries, also Esau, became Edom. And all these countries were circling around Israel later. And I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, Israel will be the premier, the premier nation in the kingdom. I, I think we can agree with that. I don't think we can argue against that. Um, they are going to be God's people. They're going to be the ruling nation. What, is the na what nations will be at the right hand and the left hand of Israel? What will be the third and fourth, or second and third nations? Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 19. First time I read this, I just, I mean, I, it's not the first time I read it, the first time I noticed what it said. I just sat there and stared at it. Had to go back and look at the context. A lot of Isaiah, just like Jeremiah, he goes and talks about prophecy, about things that are to come, and, and when Israel be restored, and he's talking about a restoration that's going to take place and, um, with Israel. At this time that Jer uh, Isaiah was speaking, the northern kingdom was in trouble. Remember, they split finally in the north, the ten tribes in the north, and the tri two tribes in the south, and and finally Assyria took the ten tribes and scattered them, destroyed the nation, and, and took those people captive and scattered them. Basically took them out, took other people in, and uh, that caused problems later for the southern kingdom. But uh, anyway, verse, I'm going to start at verse 22. It's interesting. It says, And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them, and shall heal them. In that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrians. You know, the travel from Assyria to Egypt and back, where does the highway have to go through? It has to go through Israel. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and Assyria even a blessing in the midst of the land. I want to tell you something. There's never been a time that I know of in history when the nations to the east, what would be ancient Assyria, which takes up a lot of what would be Iran today, and uh, uh, where they, they controlled Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, and then we have Egypt, and, and uh, I don't know how far Egypt went. I think probably Libya was involved in that, maybe farther south at one time where the Nubian... Um, but that's a, a, a forgotten, for the most part, kingdom, the Nubian kingdom, which was as advanced as the Egyptians farther south uh, and, uh, and played a big part in Egyptian history. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hand, and Israel, my inheritance. Can you find a place in history where Assyria and Egypt and Israel have all been well, first, 
the Assyrians and the Egyptians turning to the God of creation? No, hasn't happened. That's kingdom. I, I looked at that and I thought, wow, what in the world's going on? Why, you know, we know why the Egyptians and some of the Arab countries around there because of Ishmael. God promised to bless Abraham. But why the Assyrians? That area. Where did Abraham send his son? Eastward. And I think that's the key to that. I think, I think there's something, you know, we, we, we look at these things, there's a lot to prophecy. And people today are, uh, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. People today are, uh, some are wanting to set dates, others saying, boy, it's just it's here, the rapture, we can, we can set a date for the rapture. Others are saying, you know, all these things, prophecy is coming to pass, prophecy is not coming to pass. Unless it's the last days of the Apostle Paul. But that's been going on for a long time. Prophecy's not coming to pass. We can't look around and say, yeah, things, the things look bad. <coughs> sure, they looked bad before. If you were in the middle of World War II and lived in France or Germany or Belgium or some of those countries, could you have thought it could get any worse? Your city was flat. Most of your young men were dead. People in concentration camps. It's pretty bad. Generations forget what the last generation went through. I've been hearing ever since I was saved, you know, when I was first saved, my wife and I, in 1981, we started hearing things like, you know, there's a lot of earthquakes. The earthquakes are picking up. It's, it's the rapture is just around the corner. Uh, this happened, and that, that fits prophecy in an open Isaiah or Jeremiah or someplace, and they say, this is that prophecy coming to be fulfilled. And at that time, there were people saying, you know, the rapture has to happen in, by 1948. How do you remember that? Some saying that. 1948. Because Israel became a nation. And it had to be happened within that generation. Because they misunderstood some of the passages there in the scripture. Didn't happen, did it? The closer it came, the less they, started, they talked about 1988. But one guy wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Take Place in 1988. And I don't know, he sold a lot of copies. And it didn't happen. And you know, he had a sequel. It was put together pretty quick, as far as I'm concerned. Hit the newsstands real fast. Explain why he was wrong. It happened the next year. Well, he sold another 100,000 books or something, but the rapture still hasn't happened. And uh, we can't set those dates like that. Prophecy's not coming to pass today. And I, I think that, that helps us. We're looking for the rapture of the church. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for the Christ. And that's what's going to happen when people start looking for prophecy to be fulfilled. They start looking for the Antichrist and saying, this is that and that. Well, what does this have to do with the call of Abraham and the promises to him? It has a lot to do because, and we'll look at those more tomorrow and Sunday. Uh, the blessings were made to, to, Gen to Abraham here. In, um, and now let's turn to chapter 27 of Genesis. There's so much here. I get bogged down trying to, to get it across, and I, I'm, I'm really kind of spoiled. For the last, this is the seventh year I've been teaching through the book of Genesis in our Bible Institute, and I taught through it two years before that in Kenya. We were missionaries in Kenya. And it's just been a real blessing for me to go through that book over and over and over and over again. What the problem is, is the Lord keeps sticking things in there. <laughs> I wonder, when did that get there? But there's, there's so much, and it's such a wonderful book. and such It's the basis for everything that we believe. Did you know that? That book of Genesis is the basis for everything we believe. 
take it out of the Bible and we don't have any evidence for anything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think that means exactly what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That tells me that we're all part of his creation and we're responsible to him. We're not building ourselves. You watch some of the uh, so-called nature shows they put on PBS and they'll talk about well how these animals solved their problem and decided to grow legs and, and crawl out of the ocean. I want you to think about this. I want an answer, actually, for evolution. There, I never heard this one dealt with. Somehow life started, this is their theory, somehow life started as a handful of muck somewhere that had some electrical charge, lightning or something, and, and somehow it, it, it became life. Okay. Anything that we know that's life has order to it and has a design to it that we know, right? But anyway, this came to some kind of brewing something. And then through millions of years and many minor steps of change, it became something else. Everything that we know that lives has to eat, take nourishment of some kind, and depends on oxygen, has to, uh, or vice versa, the plants <laughs> uh, turn, uh, make oxygen. But it doesn't matter, we're talking about an animal, animal life, and they have to reproduce. How many steps of evolution would it take before the first reproduction system could be produced? Yeah, think about it a minute. It would have to be a fully formed system of whatever kind it was. And there is no such thing as a simple system. Some are just more complex than others. The, the very lowest forms of life, what we call them, are very complex structures and systems. Think about that. And how would it take nourishment or breathe? Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in six days, he created all things that exist. It's that simple. Chapter 27, verses 28 and 29. Uh, this is a blessing that was given to Jacob. Remember how Jacob got the blessing? stole it, got it from Esau, and, and so we, we have to know, um, so verse 28, therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven rain, the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine, the tough prosperity, let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee, different peoples would serve Jacob and nations would, serve, would bow down to him. Be Lord over thy brethren, Esau, Ishmael, and the sons of Keturah. Thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. This is a promise of Jacob becoming a nation. It went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My, my students get tired of me, hear me saying that. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then you find out, you find that uh, formula in the scripture a lot, too, in the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not 
Abraham, Ishmael. That's what the Muslims claim, isn't it? They do. They claim it was, they claim it was actually uh, uh, Ishmael that uh, Abraham offered on Mount Moriah, what they claim. But here we see this going to Jacob. This Isaac gave it to Jacob. So the blessing to Abraham goes down through Isaac to Jacob. Now I want to say something about Abraham. He was not the first Jew. He was the father of the nation. He was the grandfather of the nation. He was not the first Jew. He never was. Israel are the children of Israel. The father is not known by the children's name. <laughs> you know, that, people say Abraham was the first Jew. He wasn't. The promise was made to him, but Israel became a nation as the son, the, the children of Israel. The promise went through him. Now he has part in the kingdom. As a matter of fact, he, he was told that he was going to be given this kingdom. He was going to be a nation, a great nation. We have blessings. Blessings are a, a place of, uh, of honor, aren't they? We're talking about a, a position that was promised to Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. It goes beyond chapter 12, uh, goes down through, in, I mean, chapter 1, you go down through verse 7. We find it in chapter 13. We find it in chapter 15 and 17 of Genesis that God promised the land to Abraham. He promised certain land. He told him, walk through this land, go up and down, walk back and forth and look at it. He said, you see that land I'm look you're looking at? That's the land I give to you. That was not uh, something you can spiritualize. It's something we can say that this is something that it really doesn't mean that. He told Abraham, I want you to walk up and down, north and south, east and west, go up in this hill, look around. All this land will be yours. And chapter 15 even tells him it'll be from the Euphrates River to the River of Egypt. And that's not the little brook down there they call the River of Egypt that only has water in it once or twice a year. That's talking about the Nile River. Israel's going to own that. Actually, Solomon had a lot of influence clear up to the Euphrates. If you go north, if you go east, the Euphrates gets quite a ways over there, but you go north, you get to the Euphrates where it comes out of Turkey. Solomon had military and um, economic influence during his time, but he never really controlled that in the way that it promised Abraham. Abraham will become a nation that will rule over other nations. And right there we saw when he made that promise, to, when Isaac made the promise to Jacob, when he gave him the blessing, he was handing down what had been given to him that it would go through Jacob and his 12 sons and that his brethren would serve him also. Let's go back to Romans chapter 4 before we go on. This is a, a um, probably familiar with it. Probably a lot of these things might be familiar with the review and hopefully get them into an order. Uh, the background, before I look at this passage in Romans chapter 4, there's a background we have to think about. When Abraham lived, it was only two to three hundred years, somewhere in that area, after the Tower of Babel. What was going on after the Tower of Babel? They were dispersed. The nations of the world were coming into their, to the front. Here's Abraham and Ur of the Chaldeans, and God called him while he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans and said, I want you to leave that land and go to a land I'll show you. And the Bible says he went by faith. And he said, I want you to get away from your kindred, from your father's house and from your kindred. He took Lot with him. Terah followed along as he got to Haran. He stayed there till Terah died. He left. Lot followed him down into the promised land. And it's not until chapter 15 after he separated from Lot that we find it saying that Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. 
And that's where he made the covenant. God made a covenant there with him. I wish we had time to look at that. God made a covenant there in chapter 15 where Abraham took the, I think it was a uh, cow and a goat and a couple of birds and some things, and he split them in two, put a bird on each side, and he split the other animals in two, and he was there, and he went, God put him into a trance, and while he's in this trance, in this deep sleep, it says, the Lord, like a smoking furnace, and a fiery furnace and a smoking lamp, passed between the pieces. What was he doing there? He made a covenant. And you know what? He didn't take Abraham by the hand and said, you come with me. Why not? Because then Abraham, it would have been up to Abraham. He would have had a part in making sure that that came true, but he would have had a part to keep, no matter how small it was. That was an unconditional covenant that he made there with Abraham. And Abraham had some conditional things too. And Israel later, through the Mosaic Law, that was a conditional covenant, but it would be taken away. But God passed through those himself, saying, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. There's not a force in the world that could stop that from happening. It's going to happen someday. God himself has ordained it. And he's given a covenant promise to Abraham that he would do it, and he will. Genesis chapter, or Romans chapter 4. And we, you know, he's the father of circumcision, uh, but he's the father of faith. But the promise, verse 13 is what I want to zero in on, for the promise, you know, we get into circumcision, before circumcision, after circumcision, we get in the grace message when we're talking about that. But this is not what I want to look at. I just want to look at this one little verse here. For the promise that he, that Abraham should be heir of the world, was not to Abraham or to his seed, to the law, but to the righteousness of faith. Genesis 15, read it. It's an interesting thing. What, what goes on there? And there, counted God to righteousness, that he would be heir of the world, ruler of the world, through his seed, through his children, his grandchildren. And then it would go into it. You see, you have so many that won't be able to count them. We usually think of Israel ruling Israel. They will rule Israel. You know the concept of an empire? The Romans called theirs an empire. They called him the emperor. Uh, the Bible doesn't use that word, but that's basically the idea of a, an emperor is a king who rules not only his own nation, but other nations as well, rules over other kings. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Meaning that he's going to rule over everything. And he says Abraham has been given the world. He was promised to be a blessing in a great nation. He's going to be the premier nation of the world. He's going to, Israel is going to rule the world in the, in the, during the kingdom. Not just Israel. Lord Jesus Christ coming as King of kings and Israel is his people during that time. Now that's prophecy. That, that's future and that's one of the promises given to Abraham. And we have to understand that to understand what was going on. And that's why, you know, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, ties back into this, doesn't it? Very important. Very important to prophecy, understanding prophecy. Um, I wish we had time I, to look at the promises of the land, but it was him, the background. We see these governments growing. Uh, we see the, the dispensation of government after the Tower of Babel and all these nations. And Abraham's looking around, and he's just little Abraham there. He's the son of terror. And God says, I want you to come over here. I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham could understand that in a different way than we can understand it today because there weren't as many people, and these nations were just growing and coming to the forefront. And they were known by the names of different men. A lot of times these men were kings. He says, you're going to be a great nation. But you've got to wait, Abraham. It's not going to be right away. It won't be right away. That's one of the questions asked by the prophets. 
Who has ever seen a nation in one day? A people become a nation in one day. It just doesn't happen. What a wonderful, thrilling promise that he has given to Abraham. Now, he's going to be a nation. Uh, he's going to be a blessing. He'd be a great nation. Uh, three things you have to have to have a nation. Well, three things are promised to Abraham and his seed. Part and land, people, and government. Without them, you don't have anything, do you? You know, and a few years ago, we sent some troops over to Somalia because they had land and people. Nobody knew who was in charge, except you had this guy with a machine gun over here and that guy over there with a group, and they had some guns, and these guys over here, and, and they just uh, all wanted to be king, basically, is what they wanted, and they were just shooting each other. And that was a disaster. For us, they still got a disaster over there. Hard. I mean, it's a difficult situation. Um, when I was in Kenya, there's a lot of corruption among the police force in, in, that, in that country. And sometimes the people are more afraid of the police than they are the bandits. I wasn't going that way, but it is. And I asked our students in school there, I said, would you rather have no government or the government that you have? And they said, we'd rather have the government we have than no government. Because they know what would happen with no government. Chaos. Not good. <laughs> Not good. Uh, God's ordained government, and that's the way we're, it has to operate, what it does. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, God has a promise to Israel, and we're going to get into the hope of that tomorrow. We're going to get into more of that tomorrow. Um, let's go to Acts chapter 7. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, And I'm going to close here in Acts chapter 7. In closing, that's a preacher's turn that means absolutely nothing. Uh, Acts chapter 7. I'm not going to read verses 8 through 45. And I hope you're familiar with these passages. And he gives a history of Israel. Stephen does. Um, verse 4. I'm going to start verse 1. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? Questioning Stephen. And he said, Men and brethren and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get thee out of the land, out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I will show you. And he came up out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him from his land wherein he now, he now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set a foot on, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, as yet he had no child. That's before he had a son at all. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, that was Egypt, 
and they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge. And God said, And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place, back into Israel again. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy and Joseph and sold Joseph into Egypt and so on. But then later Moses came and brought them out. You know, finally the whole family went down and brought them out and brought them back into the promised land. And they thought that was the promise. But there was more to come. And they were given the law. We're going to talk about the law tomorrow. Talk about Israel's hope and how that ties to the law. I've kind of laid some groundwork. That was a dispensation. That was a, a dispensation. I see a little difference in some. I don't see seven dispensations. I see four. There's some sub-dispensations, human government, promise. The promise to Abraham was not to the world. It was promised to Abraham. There's a promise to the world that comes through Israel of a Messiah. But there wasn't. There was always an opening for Gentiles to come to the living God of creation. And we want to think about that. It's very important to know that Israel's purpose, and we'll talk about that more tomorrow, Israel's purpose was to be a witness to the world to turn the Gentiles who had turned away from the God of creation to turn them back to the Creator God and you'll find creation interspaced clear through the prophets going back and talking about creation the God who is the Creator and talking about the, those that had turned away from Him Israel had a mission they had a goal they were to serve God by being a witness and a testimony. And when God would bless them, the Gentiles would see it, that their God would bless them, and he would also see that their God could, could punish them also or discipline them when they failed to do that. And I'm thankful we're not under the law today. I'm thankful for the dispensation of grace that was ushered in through the, Lord, through the Apostle Paul and the Lord Je by the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul. He made that known. He started doing something different. We read through, read through this chapter 7 of Acts. We find them stoning Stephen because he said, you're just like your fathers. Israel had such a terrible history of rebellion against God. He raised up the prophets and sent them and sent them and sent them and they rejected him and they killed him and they cast them out. And here then, in Acts chapter 9, we find the Lord appearing to this, to this uh, Pharisee that was out killing Christians are those who believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the anointed one of God, and saved him and did something new. And we live in a unique period of history. The dispensation of grace, of grace of God. And you know, if you don't understand that poor man that I was listening, read, uh, talk about prophecy today and talk about heaven today, I prayed for him because he doesn't understand the difference of prophecy and mystery. And the mystery has been revealed to us through the Apostle Paul. So it's a, it's a, it shouldn't be a secret, but it still is to many, isn't it? I tell you what, when I came to understand, I was a Baptist. Went to all Baptist schools, and they've been under Baptist ministry, and I thank God for those people, and for I thank God for their zeal in making known uh, that people need to be saved and that Jesus Christ was the Savior. They explained that to me very well, and, and I'm thankful for them. But then they confused me. <laughs> and there's things in the Scripture I'd look at and say, I don't understand this. And they said, well, 
I've got this answer and that answer, but I was confused, and I didn't know what to do with Acts chapter 2. And I had a man sit down with me one day and, and said, Brother Ed, I want to show you this. And he said, I want to I tell you what's going on in Acts chapter 2. And I said, I wish you would. Your commentaries wouldn't tell me. I read in the commentaries, and he just skipped over it or changed it, something. And, and he said, Brother, I think Israel was being offered the kingdom there by Peter. And I said, wow. You know what? After being saved, I came to understand the word of God rightly divided was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Being saved first. I tell you what, going to heaven, that's, can't beat that. Amen. Knowing your relationship with Christ, and I, I'm thankful for the people because they did teach me that I could have a complete assurance of my salvation. But boy, they had me confused about the gospel. They had me confused about prophecy. They had me confused about the book of Acts. They just had me confused about a lot of things. I, really, I didn't know Paul's, the place of Paul's epistles. But they taught me a lot. They gave me, and they gave me the tools to study the Bible for myself. And that's very important, isn't it? That we learn to read. Don't just believe what I say. I might be wrong. I've been wrong before. I've changed my mind. Anybody that's never changed their mind about anything has never learned anything. <laughs> we learn, don't we? Today, the grace of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is saving all, Jew and Gentile. And I tell you what, Gentiles can be saved in the Old Testament too, but they had to be through Israel. They'll be able to be saved in the tribulation, but still going to be through Israel. They'll be able to be saved in the kingdom, but still going to be through Israel. But today, it's Jew and Gentile on equal plane, and that's what got Paul in trouble. That's what got him in bad trouble. When he started talking about the, not that he talked about the Gentiles, but he talked about them on an equal plane. We have a fantastic opportunity. And the Apostle Peter, he says, boy, you know, in Second Peter, he says, you know, if you want to know why God has not returned, why Christ has not returned to set up the kingdom, you've got to ask Paul because his long-suffering is salvation. And Paul can explain it to you. That's what he says in Second Peter chapter 3. And you know what I think? I think God wants people to be saved. I think that's what he wants. I think that's near to his heart. And I think that's why we're here as believers. That he's left us here, you know, instead of zapping us into heaven. We're supposed, we have a commission that's well, not the great commission given to Israel, but it's very similar. It's still redemptive, and it's redemption toward reconciliation. It's always, everything God does has reconciliation in mind. He wants to bring lost humanity back to him. Each and every soul out there is a precious soul in God's sight. They need to hear the gospel of the grace of God. And we have a message. If you want to come and understand the message of grace, you have something that's far greater than the world knows of. You know, I know it comes out of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5, I think. Maybe it might be 6 or 7. No, excuse me, Matthew chapter 10. What will it gain a man? To, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? interesting question but the question that came across my mind as I read that recently was what will it profit me to gain the whole world well that poor lost man loses his soul what are my priorities what has lasting value and it's not the things of this earth human souls are going to be there forever somewhere and we have the message we have the message of salvation and we have it clear 
I don't have all the answers. I don't know all, you know, there's a lot of things in here I don't understand. And even the, uh, come to the word, understand the word rightly, divided, we have, we have more answers than anybody else. How to understand the Bible and who know what God's doing today. Building the body of Christ. Building the body of Christ is his people today, not Israel. Not through the, the genetic code that goes down through Israel, because that's tied to that. But spiritually, we're tied together in the Lord Jesus Christ as a body that we had worked together. And you know why God wants us to live holy? So we can be a witness and a testimony to the world. And he calls us to a holy life, doesn't he? Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who thought it not right to be equal with God, but humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He came in the form of man. And coming in the form of man, he was obedient unto death. He was obedient to the Father. And that he went to the cross in the greatest demonstration of love the world will ever see while we're yet sinners. God committed his love to us. Christ died for us. Died for our sins. I don't know you. Many of you I've met for the first time. Many of you I've talked on the phone or read your names. Some of you I've never met at all before. But there's only one person in this room that I can say without a doubt that I know is saved and on their way to heaven, and that's me. There are people in churches all over this land, grace churches, Baptist churches, you name it, all kinds of churches. Yeah, grace churches. That know the doctrine, but don't know the Savior. Each individual has to put their trust individually personally in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Knowing and acknowledging because you know you, you don't have much to be saved from if you don't know you're a sinner. The wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you've never trusted Christ for your salvation you need to do that today. We don't know what tomorrow holds. It's so simple. I didn't say easy. I said simple. It's the hardest message man has ever been confronted with because our pride doesn't like it. Our self-centeredness doesn't like it. We want to insist that somehow we can earn our salvation, that we can earn acceptance by God, but we can't. We have to trust Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross, believing that he died for us, for each of us and all of us and every one of us and that his sins were placed on him that day. And he was buried. But he rose from the dead, and he alone can make intercession for us for between us and the Father. Not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy has saved us. If you've never actually done that, you need to do that. You need to trust Christ as your Savior. If you're confused about it, because some people are, it's not trusting Christ and church membership or giving or anything or else or even knowing the grace message. When I was first saved, I didn't, I didn't know very much. Except my wife thought I went crazy. Trust him. And if you're a believer, we're told to walk by faith 
not by sight, in service to him. Now, I don't know what that means for you as an individual believer because I don't know what opportunities God has given to you to serve him, but I know that he has given you an opportunity. And each of us are to serve him wherever we are, use the opportunities that we have. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and thank you. We've tried to lay a groundwork tonight, Lord, for further looking at the message for Israel and the contrast between it and the message of grace that we have. That Israel has a wonderful hope, but it's not our hope. And that our hope is heavenly, where theirs is earthly. But we thank you, Lord, that by the blood of Christ, our Savior and Lord. And we, we just lift up each each one here tonight and thank you for them, for each one that's come, giving them their time to come and to fellowship and to worship together around the preaching and teaching of your word. And thank you for the privilege of prayer, Lord, that we can join together in it. And we thank you for this night together in the wonderful and thrilling name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.